God care about me? Does God even notice me? Has God forgotten me? These sorts of questions are real. You don't have to live long to face these questions. And you can be a Christian for a very long time, even decades, and find yourself again with these questions. Does God care? Has he overlooked, forgotten me? Today in our text, we'll see someone face these questions. The midst of great, enduring, heart-wrenching pain. And hopefully in her comfort, we'll find comfort, strength, for us today as well. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 225, page 225. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app, just so you know, follow along uh, as we walk, work our way through this chapter. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We're in chapter 1. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those as we work our way through these verses we're starting a new series in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel were originally one book. Our Bibles have them as two. Originally one book. And you might wonder, why study the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel? Well, in fact, there are numerous reasons. For, but when as Christians, we understand, we believe all the scriptures are breathed out by God and are fruitful, helpful, profitable for our lives today. 1 Samuel also, in particular, plays a key role in the history of God's people. We're going to see some key players like Samuel and King Saul, King David. And most of all, a, a promise pointing to the promised eternal king, Jesus Christ. We also are helped because the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament. We want to know Jesus better. So often, the Old Testament helps us to understand and, and have a, a deeper foundation for understanding him. And also the fact is, this book is filled with real people like us. Sinners who go astray, people with broken hearts, deep suffering, rebellious, failed leaders, great difficulties. And the events of 1 Samuel were, took place from about 1070 to about 971 B.C. God's people, the Israelites, have been delivered out of slavery in Egypt in what we call the Exodus. Joshua had led them into Canaan, the promised land, and they had settled there. But as they settled, there was no clear leadership given to them. Uh, there were a succession of people called judges who played a role in leadership and care. But it, it was a chaotic time. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, it goes Judges and then 1 Samuel. In our Bibles, Ruth is uh, placed in between there. But, but the original goes Judges and then 1 Samuel. And so the, the situation of Judges is the situation when we come into 1 Samuel. And here's the last line of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel... And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So just in general, we're thinking through like, what's the cultural attitude of that day when 1 Samuel begins? It is this. Everyone is just doing what's right in their own eyes, which obviously is, is not following God. And there's no king. There's no leader. 
And we see four times in the book of Judges, we're told again and again, Israel had no king. Israel had no king, which prepares the way for 1 Samuel. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel is named Samuel, which might make us think it was written by Samuel, which is the case sometimes in the scriptures. That's not the case here. So we're actually never told the scriptures in particular who wrote the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. Now, as we continue through this uh, series in the fall in 1 Samuel, I think you'll find it helpful to often read the text leading into that Sunday, because we often have these larger portions of narrative. So if you look inside your guide on the left-hand side at the bottom, typically there will be a week or two of the next texts that are coming up. So you might just take that with you this week and read portions of chapter 2 that are listed there just in preparation for that. And then also related to our work in 1 Samuel, I would encourage you to seriously consider joining a small group Bible study. We call them community groups here at Hope. In those groups, what we do is we we study the scriptures together and we'll study in particular the text that we just preached through that Sunday. Now we're not in the conversation just rehashing the sermon, but hopefully the sermon opened up the text, now we're thinking about it, and then together we're seeking to apply the text to our daily lives. Uh, In the groups, we also pray together, seek to grow in friendship as well. Uh, And so you can sign up for those, the church website. There's also a a map at the back of the room you can sign up uh, as well. So let's look. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard, regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. But Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate. Her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. The woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, but there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble find on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. Exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And this morning in our passage, I hope you'll see this emphasis. Keep trusting in your God, for he faithfully remembers his people. Keep trusting in your God, for he faithfully remembers his people. And look at our passage in four parts. So first, we'll see the pains of an obscure family. Second, we'll see prayers of a broken heart. 
Third, we'll see provision of a remembering God. And fourth, praise of a glorious God. We'll spend more of our time on the first two of these. So first we see pains of an obscure family in verses 1 through 8. First Samuel begins by telling us about a man and giving us a bit of his genealogy. The description doesn't start out very impressively. It's simply described as, quote unquote, a certain man. He lives in this small town in a hill country. And we're giving a list of some of his family members. The list, honestly, is unimpressive and literally unknown. Typically in the Bible, where we often do see genealogies, there will be some people that are recognizable. That they're used to, to place in history and in this family line. But here we have this unknown genealogy. Elkanah is just a certain man from a small town of little importance. Today he would be an unknown small town guy from flyover country, far from the big city. This obscurity and unimportance at the outset is a hint of the theme that we're going to see throughout this book. For Israel, the nation is in great difficulty and trouble. They're in need of help. They're going to look for a leader, but leadership, help, will not come from the expected places of power, influence, identity. And we're told in verse 2 that Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And I say, what are we to do with this polygamy? Well, from the, from the beginning in the scriptures, we see God's good design is for one man with one woman committed in marriage for life. And in the Old Testament, we do see multiple wives, polygamy, practiced. But never commanded by God nor commended at times, there are some prohibitions in order to try to protect from abuse. So polygamy was never, is never God's good design. And when we watch polygamy happen, described in the Old Testament, we almost always see disaster, pain, brokenness, even people wandering from following God through these polygamous relationships. That's what we're going to see in our passage as well. Pain that will result from this. And we're told at the end of verse 2 that Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. In the world of that day, having children was tremendously important for numerous reasons. It was primarily an agrarian society, so if you had a farm, the more children the better in order to farm the land. It also was a land where there was no social security, and so Typically, the way that you'd be cared for in your older age would be your children. So, so you wanted to have numerous children so they could care for you in that way. Also, the nation of Israel was a relatively small country. So they needed to have more children in order to, to maintain this nation. So because of this, women in that day who had numerous children were highly valued, held in very high regard. And women who were unable to have children often endured shame. At best, they might be pitied by others. At worst, some would think of them as somehow cursed by God, the reason they don't have children. Now, it seems likely that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. We see a deep love that he has for her in our passage. And because in time she was unable to have children, it seems likely then that that is when he married Peninnah. By this, Elkanah had 
taken matters into his own hands. This was a common practice among others. So, so likely thinking others are doing this. So I'll marry another woman. So then I can have children. I can have some offspring. How often we too are tempted to take matters into our own hands. To not choose God's way. And often, unfortunately, to throw off God's ways for our ways, in particular in areas where we really, really desire something, even when it's a good thing we desire. I wonder where in your life you are currently tempted to choose not to follow God's ways, but take matters into your own hands. One of the areas I've seen this play out repeatedly in the life of Christians is also related to marriage, but not in polygamy, but it is a a Christian who really desires to be married, which is a good and godly desire. Marriage is a gift from God, but after some time of desiring marriage, not finding marriage, I've seen again and again men and women who love Jesus Choose to take things in their own hands. For one of the prohibitions that God has given to us related to marriage is that we're to marry someone else who's in the faith, another Christian. I must marry someone who shares this same faith. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Where they're from doesn't matter. But they need to be in Christ, we're told. But again and again, I've seen men and women, often with broken hearts, choose this path. And I've lived long enough to see how often that path leads away from following God, leads away from faithfulness, and often leads to great pain and difficulty. And in so many other areas, friends, we're prone to take things into our own hands. Hannah's very name means favored one. And so the readers of this book initially, they would recognize that. So here we see Hannah, the favored one, but who's certainly not experiencing the favor of God. How could she be favored when she has no children? Hannah's pain and childlessness is also representative of the entire nation, the condition of Israel. God had promised to bless his people, to keep them. But the blessings seem to be lacking in the world of God's people. We're going to see that this family is marked by pain and rivalry, but it's also a family that was seeking to be faithful to God. We see in verse 3 that Elkanah and his family used to go up and worship and sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh. God had instructed his people to build a special tent called the tabernacle. And there, God would uniquely draw near to his people. And God's people could draw near and worship him. It was there they would come and make sacrifices and worship to God. And when they came into the promised land, into Canaan, they had set up the tabernacle in uh, Shiloh. And now for years and years, it had remained there, nearly a permanent place. And so God's people would make their way to Shiloh for these yearly festivals, these yearly sacrifices. So we see, here we see that Elkanah's family was faithful to do that. We're introduced in brief to Eli and his two sons, the priests, who we'll learn more about in the coming chapters. So year by year, this was their practice as they sought to be a worshiping, faithful family to make the pilgrimage to worship God at Shiloh. 
We see in verse 4 that as they went, they would make a sacrifice. And as they did this, part of the sacrifice would be given over to God. But then some was then kept back by those who made the sacrifice for them to eat and to consume. And we see in the text that, that Elkanah would give portions to Panina and then also to her sons and daughters. Evidently, she has a significant number of children. We're not told how many, but she has numerous children. And then in verse 5, look down at verse 5, in the ESV it says this, But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now if you're reading the Bibles we provided, and maybe your Bible, there, there's maybe a footnote here. If so, you can look at the bottom of the page, and in the Bibles we provided, at the bottom there's this note, and it says this. It could also be read this way, And although he loved Hannah, he would give her only one portion, because the Lord had closed her womb. In fact, as scholars say, both of those may be correct. So it's not, we're not sure which one of the two it is. And for these sort of footnotes actually should give us confidence in our Bible. That we don't have to hide situations like this. Because, you know, here's what's there. We're so confident in the manuscripts that in places like this, we just say, here's, here's one spot where it's unclear. But it doesn't change the sense of that. Because whichever way it is, the point that we're seeing here is that Elkanah deeply loves Hannah. And as her, her heart breaks, he, he mourns for her. Now what happens each year is they went up, perhaps all year round, look at verse 6. And her, Hannah's rival, used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So Peninnah saw Hannah as a rival. I mean, very likely Peninnah sensed that uh, Hannah was more greatly loved by Elkanah. And so the way of getting back at her rival, she could speak destructive, painful words. Growing up, my best friend, uh, we, we both had brothers who were the same age, who were four years older than us. So when, when they were seniors in high school, we were freshmen in high school. We were sophomores, they had graduated well, our sophomore year of high school, our football team that my best friend and I were on, we won the state championship. And the entire little town that we were from were excited about that, except for a few. Some of the few were our older brothers. For their senior year, they had a really good team, but they didn't win. And now they're, you know, kind of punkish as we really were, younger brothers, had now won. And because we loved to stick it in their face. At every opportunity, we would remind them that we had won. We, we got these state championship rings that we would wear. And so, you know, at, at opportune times, we would say, like, could you pass the ketchup? And you would hold the ring out so that they would have to see it. And it just burned them up. If you met my brother today, and if you brought this topic up, you would see on his face that, that still that sting remains. Why? Because these brothers, we were to them, in a sense, rivals to them. And we were, I was ungodly. So I was not a faithful Christian at the time at all. But friends, in an infinitely deeper, more painful way, Penina was provoking her rival, Hannah. You can just use your imagination to think of the things that Penina could say, reminding Hannah again and again that Penina had children Hannah did not. Unless we think this was a one-time occurrence, look at verse 7. It says, it went on year by year. As often as she went up, 
she used to provoke her. So maybe it happened year-round, but at the very least, at this time when they're trying to go and worship God, that's what Hannah would endure. Elkanah is aware of this. He tries to comfort her. Look at verse 8. He says, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We see that he really does care. Probably not the best words that he says there. But he is trying to make an effort to comfort his broken-hearted wife. But even in this, with this yearly provoking, Hannah was faithful. She kept going up to the house of the Lord year after year. She didn't refuse to go. But Hannah's trapped in this years-long enduring pain where it seems like perhaps she's been forgotten by God. So we see the pain of an obscure family. But then second, we see prayers of a broken heart. Prayers of a broken heart in verses 9 through 18. So we see this going up happened year after year. This provoking happens year after year. But verse 9, a change happens. It says, after they ate and drank, Hannah rose. The sense of this is she makes some decisive action. This time she gets up, she goes to the tabernacle, and there at the tabernacle was Eli the priest doing his normal role, overseeing the role at the tabernacle. Look down at verse 10. It says, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So in prayer, she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. And as she prays, she makes a vow to the Lord, vowing that if the Lord would give her a son, she would give the son back to the Lord for his entire life. But also he would take on a, a Nazarite vow, which would include things like, like not cutting hair. And friends, as Hannah makes this vow, again, this is a place where the Old Testament is descriptive to us, not commanding us. We're showing what Hannah does when she makes this vow, but nowhere are we commanded nor commended in making vows to God. We should be very, very careful in making vows to God. In fact, typically we shouldn't make vows to God. So we're told this because this is what Hannah does, but we don't want to take, therefore I should go and do this. That's not what we're to learn from this text. Hannah goes to her God in heart-wrenching, tear-soaked prayer, weeping bitterly. We see some of what she prays, verse 11. She refers to God as, O Lord of hosts. So the word Lord here, it's the, the covenant name Yahweh. So he, she, she refers to him, Yahweh of hosts, referring to the great almighty God of the universe, the God who's ruler over all, who has an army of angels. She asks of him if he will indeed look on the affliction of his servant to remember her and not forget her. In this, Hannah draws from Exodus 3.7, where previously in the history of God's people, God assured Moses, here's what he says in Exodus 3.7, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry. So this is a time when they face these afflictions, and so Hannah knows her God's word, knows the scriptures. So she uses God's word to be her words. She prays for God to intervene in these afflictions. So where did Hannah's faith to pray come from? It was grounded in what her God had done in the past. 
And what was the high point of God's saving work in the past? It was their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. So he says, I I have faith to pray today because of what God has done in the past. He has remembered and kept and sustained his people. So in light of that, she prays. She was bold enough to humbly ask, God, would you remember me? Would you remember me in my affliction? Hannah had no position, no wealth, no power. She was a nobody, but she chose to trust in her God, to go to her God in the midst of her pain and to go to her God with her pain. So she prays, remember me, please don't forget me, implying that in her heart she's wondering, has God forgotten We see that Eli, the priest, sees Hannah praying. Her mouth is moving, but but nothing is coming out, so Eli assumes that she must be drunk. He scolds her for that. But she explains that no, in fact, she's pouring out her heart in prayer. Eli's response likely shows how rare it must have been, unfortunately, for people to come to the tabernacle and pray. And how common it must have been for people to come near the tabernacle while they were drunk. So he's just making this assumption If someone's behaving this way, they must be drunk just like so many others who come by drunk. It likely also points to a lack of discernment on Eli's part, which we'll see more of in the weeks to come. So Eli blesses her as she goes. But then we see a shocking conclusion. Look at verse 18. It says, And the woman went her way, and her face was no longer sad. She goes from weeping bitterly to no longer being sad. So we see a change in Hannah, but what what has changed with her circumstances? In fact, nothing has. It's not that she's pregnant. It's not even that she's pregnant and she doesn't know it, but God knows it. Nothing has changed, but she is changed. Now, we might imagine that the order of events would go like this. Hannah prays, Hannah has a child, then she's comforted. Then she finds peace, then she finds rest, then she finds joy. But that's not what we see, is it? She prays, then she finds peace. Then she finds comfort from the Lord, then she finds rest. Then... Later, she has a child. She poured her heart out to God, and there came to her relief, comfort, peace from her God. And friends, the good news is this is not unique for Hannah. For God has opened up a way for every person who's a believer in Jesus Christ to do the same. And because of Christ's perfect final sacrifice... And because he is the the final, the great high priest, friends, we don't make a pilgrimage to Shiloh. We don't bring sacrifices. You don't even go to a priest nor to a pastor. But friends, through Christ, you have direct access to the Father. From there, we're invited, called to come. To come to our Father with our real struggles, our real needs. Apostle Peter helps us here. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you hear that, because your God cares for you, he does care for you. Because he does, cast all your anxieties on him. Not some of them, all of them on him. Throw them by faith onto him. That's what he wants. When he knows and cares about every burden, every pain, every sorrow of yours, and his desire is not for you to bear them up alone, but to cast them on him, that he would take them. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So did you hear what Paul said? Pray about all these things, every anxiety, everything that overwhelms you. The promise in the text is not that he will give us what we ask for, but that he'll give us peace after we ask. Because that's the assurance. God gives that gift to his people. Friend, in neither text are we guaranteed that we'll receive exactly what we've prayed for. Sometimes we will. In fact, as Christians, often we will, but not always. Sometimes within God's sovereign working in the world, we won't receive what we pray for. But we can always know the peace, the relief, the comfort that Hannah also experienced. She prayed based upon God's past acts, deliverance in the Exodus. So do we. What do we pray in light of? How do we know that God cares for us? It is the greater act of Exodus, the greater act of deliverance, brings us the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the the perfect son of God, goes to the cross in place of sinners like us to pay for our penalty that we would receive grace. He was raised triumphant. Friends, this throughout all of history proclaims God's faithfulness, that he will not forget us. Christ was forsaken, so we wouldn't be forsaken. This free gift is held out saying, this is why we pray. We know that God cares because of the cross. We know that God is powerful because he raised Christ from the dead. So it's in light of that that we pray. We pray with hope. We pray with faith. And I wonder if you feel forgotten today. If you wonder, has God overlooked me? Does God care? I pray you would believe that your God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's displayed that for eternity through the cross. He cares for you. So let me urge you, cast your cares on him today, tomorrow, every day, because he cares for you. So we see the prayers of a broken heart Third, we see the provision of remembering God, verses 19 to 28. The family worshiped the Lord there, then they went back home. We see then finally Hannah was able to become pregnant. The language of verse 19, it says, and the Lord remembered her. 
The idea of the Lord remembering is not implying that God had literally forgotten Hannah, but it is that he took notice, that he acted on behalf of his people. We see the same reality in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. We're told that God remembered his covenant. Hannah bore a son and named him Samuel. Within that same year, the time came for them to go back to Shiloh as they normally did. This time, Hannah says she's not going to go. So she'll keep Samuel at home until he's weaned, and then we'll take him, and there he will live at the tabernacle, and she will fulfill her vow, and that's what she does. See verses 24 to 28, that she takes little Samuel, probably two or three years old, to the tabernacle. And she had committed to give him to the Lord. That's what she does, is she gives him over to Eli, reminds Eli, I'm the one, do you remember, that you prayed for that day. And as long as he lives... I lend, give over my child to the Lord. Hannah faithfully fulfills her vow. No doubt, must have been a painful thing to fulfill. So we will see Samuel grow up and play a key role relating to Eli as the priest in Shiloh. In our past, the situation goes pretty quickly from Hannah's suffering, her pain, to becoming pregnant. Feels like it's, you know, just a really short episode, that everything is resolved easily. But when we read it clearly, it, this happened over some number of years. This wasn't just a few days, but years of extended time across which God worked. And friends, often in this life, our God is faithfully at work, but so often his timing is different than ours. And I would say for myself and probably for most Christians that I know, almost always God's timing seems slow to us. It is true there. Sometimes we pray and you're like, wow, I can't believe he answered the prayer that quickly. That's a great gift and we receive that. But I think more often than not, our view is that God is moving so slowly. Hannah was unable to have children. She prayed, she received, and she would go on to have other children. But we want to be careful in how we read our text. We want to understand that the result that Hannah received is not promised to us. In that day in Israel, there would have been numerous women who were contemporaries of Hannah who also were childless, who also were brokenhearted who so desired children and no doubt prayed for God to remember them. We're not promised that God will always give us specifically what we ask for in prayer. And we're going to see that Hannah does play a key role in the history of God's people because her son Samuel will play this key role in setting apart these first kings, Saul and Samuel. So a misreading and an abuse of this text would be someone to teach it this, this way. They would say, if you'll just have enough faith like Hannah, and if you're truly desperate in prayer like her, perhaps even make a vow to God, God will always give you what you want. And sadly, that is sometimes taught. But it's problematic on so many levels. One, it's completely foreign to the scriptures. But it's also crushing to us. Because it implies if you don't have what you're praying for, the problem is you. You just don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you would have it. 
happens, it's devastating, it's ungodly, it's unbiblical. Don't believe it. And within God's sovereignty and his goodness, he he doesn't promise to always give. And yet he does desire for us to pray. Friend, he wants you to pray more than we're interested in praying. He gives sobering, outrageous promises to us in our praying. So friends, pray often, pray boldly. But God doesn't always give us what we pray for. Suffering pain, the disappointment isn't always lifted. In fact, in this life, it's often enduring, sometimes for years or decades, even a lifetime. So we want to be mindful that in this life, we don't always receive as Hannah did. As Christians, though, we also live by faith for eternity, a future day when finally there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. So we're not assured we'll receive what we ask for, but we are assured we will receive what Hannah did and what she received as she prayed, when she received peace, comfort, grace, even joy. As we saw in 1 Peter, as we see in Philippians, that is promised to God's people. That is available for us, for you and me today. So when we cast our cares, our anxieties, our pains on him, and often this is an ongoing, repeated thing, not necessarily in one moment, friends, there is peace and grace, comfort, hope for us. Friends, just as the Lord had remembered Hannah, had not forgotten Hannah, but he has promised he will not forget you. He will never forget you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. So we see the provision of a remembering God. And then last, we see the praise of a glorious God, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So this comes after Hannah receives the child, after she dedicates and gives him over to worship of God at the tabernacle. And we see Hannah appropriately praise God. How often in my own life I, I do receive from God, and yet I so often don't give thanks, don't praise, but I move on to so many other things that I think I need or other disappointments. Friend, we want to cultivate a life of praise like Hannah. In this prayer or in this song, she praises her God's character. She rejoices in the salvation that has been provided for her. She says of God, verse 2, there is none like him. There is no rock like her God, she says. Verse 3, he's a God of knowledge and he weighs actions. Seeing that God, her God, our God is worthy of all of our trust, all of our praise. He's worthy of our prayers. She also speaks of God's unique ways in this prayer. Verse 4, he says, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The full become hungry, but the hungry become full. The barren one now has children. Verse 7, he brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor and the needy. Throughout this prayer, we see that reversals are so often a part of God's plan. The proud are humbled. The humble are lifted up. As we walk through 1 Samuel, we'll see that pattern again and again. The proud and the powerful humbled. The lowly Lifted up. 
We see a hint of another reversal in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He's referring to death, but even more than death, is also referring to resurrection. So here, so long before Jesus, pointing ahead, preparing the way, preparing God's people for this idea of resurrection that was to come when Jesus was raised from the dead. Then Hannah concludes her prayer. Verse 10, as she speaks of God's promised king, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Now here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Hannah is speaking of God's king, his king. But actually, Israel didn't have a king yet. That, that hasn't come yet. But, but she is empowered by the Spirit to say, there is this one, God's king, who is to come. But even more than that, notice she goes on to say, and exalt the power of the anointed. This word anointed is the word anointed one, the Messiah. So here, Hannah, whether she realizes or not, is, is pointing ahead to this king that is to come, the king who is the Messiah himself, the promised eternal king, which is Jesus Christ. So Hannah turns our eyes to the future. If our God will care for his people, he will care for us through the sending forth of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have a very similar prayer song that we see in Luke chapter 1. Some it's called it Mary's Song or the Magnificat. And I commend it to you this week. You might read it and compare it, and you'll find a lot of similar tones. Mary knew her Bible. It seems likely she's even drawing from some of Hannah's language, just as Hannah had drawn from previous in Exodus. And in Mary's song, she speaks of this one who would come, the Messiah who would come, who would humble himself, taking on flesh, would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because that's the good news that Hannah is preparing the way for. That's the good news for us. This Savior, this King who has come, who humbled himself for us. We see in Hannah desperation and a complete inability to help herself. It was not only true of her, it was also true of Israel at the time. They were hopeless, desperate, in need of a leader, need of godliness. The reality is we all are in a similar place. We're all in need of help. We so often think we can do it ourselves, rely on our own strength, choose our own way. Friends, the way we're going to see in 1 Samuel is when we're desperate and we look to our God. That is especially when God's hand comes in to comfort to sustain, to bring hope, even joy, to meet his people in their needs. Friends, God is faithful. He has not and will not forget us. He has not. He will not forget you. Never will he leave you nor forsake you. Let's trust in him today by faith.